Well, good morning, and let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. Okay, and we've made our way as far as verse 37. So it'll be verse 37 where we'll pick it up this morning. Let's begin by reading our passage together. And on the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only son, my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and suddenly he cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. And while he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy. And gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. As we continue in Luke's gospel here on Sunday morning, we find that the event taking place just after the Mount of Transfiguration, which succeeds the uh, uh, corresponding uh, account in each of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we find that Jesus is met by a large crowd. And amongst that crowd is one who is desperate, a father, looking for healing for his only child, his only son. He first brings his son to the disciples, the nine that were still waiting at the foot of the mountain while James, John, and Peter went with Jesus to the mountain of uh, transfiguration where they saw on top of the mountain, clearly presented to them in all glory, Jesus in his full deity. They were able to see him apart from his physical flesh, and as he manifested himself to his disciples, they discovered the realization that what Peter had said in in Luke 9.20, that he is the Christ, the chosen one, He reveals the authenticity of that account to his disciples as they are there on the amount of transfiguration. One of the most famous paintings done concerning the transfiguration was done by Raphael himself. It is interesting that Raphael in his depiction of the transfiguration also includes for us the account that we are looking at this morning. He shows and demonstrates that at the foot of the hill where Jesus then returns, we find the crowd with the Father and His Son waiting for Jesus, seeing that the account of the transfiguration and also the events that take place therefore afterwards were known to the church as being one account in and of itself. Let us remember, and this is something that I need to stress, Uh, I don't think I can stress this enough. Each book of the Bible is a letter that has been written. 
The letter is meant to be read in its entirety, from the beginning of the letter to the end of the letter. And as a result, in the looking at the entirety of the letter, you understand the context of the individual events that are found, therefore, in this letter. And as a result, we discover that if we read inconsistency, the transfiguration, and then in each account, in Mark's account more specifically, Matthew in Matthew 17, and here in Luke 9, each one of the writers wants us to understand that it is significant that Jesus came down to meet what he meant after such a dynamic revelation given to his disciples. Many of us, when we read the Bible, we read it unlike any other piece of literature that we have. It's confused me to the point uh, that I have no answer for that reasoning other than to say that often I believe the Bible is seen and uh, referenced uh, as a reference book rather than a piece of literature to be read from beginning to end due to the fact that the way it's presented in most teachings across America today. Where we take a passage of Scripture and we divorce it from the context of its original letter and we also often in doing that divorce it from the context of the 66 books of the Bible that that portion of Scripture is found within. Do you ever read a letter from someone that has written you or sent you an email? Do you ever open that email or open that letter and move to the beginning of that or the middle of that letter, take a few sentences out of the middle of it, and then close the letter up and think that you have any idea what your uh, writer wrote you? We wouldn't approach any letter in that way whatsoever. For example, you could open a letter and it said, the other day we had to rush to the hospital. And you could close that letter and not having any idea what the writer of that letter was choosing to communicate to you. Why were they going to the hospital? What was the need for it? Was it some emergency, life-threatening emergency, or was it for something uh, as special as having a child? But yet, when we come to the Bible, the number of Christians that read it as a reference manual, where I'm going to open it up, I'm going to read a few verses, and I'm going to take those verses, and I'm going to uh, apply those in the manner that I see fit, take them out of the whole uh, understanding of everything that is written around it. There are three contexts that you always need to be considered with whenever you are reading a set of verses. The first context is the letter that it is written in itself. What did Paul or Luke or James or John have in mind when they included this particular account within their letter? But then you have the context, the third overall context, and that is the context of the 66 books of the Bible. Because even though we have 66 books that were written over 1,400 years by 42 different authors, we have a consistency amongst all of them showing that they were inspired and the fingerprints of God can be found from Revelation to Genesis and back uh, from Genesis to Revelation again. Now why do I say all of this in the light of what we have read this morning? This mountaintop experience that 
Peter, James, and John had with Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration where they saw Jesus in his entire glory. And you can listen to that message from last week online. They now come back to the reality of this world. They come back to the difficulties of this world. They come back to the understanding that this world is hurting and in desperate need of healing from a Savior's hand. We also find within it the limitations of the disciples due to their unbelief. We find that the disciples were approached by this man because he hoped that in and through their authority given to them by Christ that they could heal and restore his only child, his son. And if you are a parent, I ask you this morning, to what length would you go to? To free your son from the ravishous uh, hands of the devil himself. And then you have this little boy, this child, who has no control over himself. And though Peter, John, and James wanted to stay on top of the mountain, Jesus knew that these mountaintop experiences only prepare us for the realities of the fallen world in which we operate. It prepares us. It reminds us that we have won the war, but we are still fighting the battles. It reminds us that there is someone in whom we serve that is greater than we are. And yet, He chose to use instruments as flawed and as uh, frail as you and I. And as we come down the mountain the next day, They came down from this mountain, and first we are greeted by a great crowd. The other gospel writers tell us that as Jesus is approaching this great crowd and trying to make sense of what is happening, he first discovers that his disciples are in an argument with the scribes, the religious leaders of that time. We don't know what exactly the content of that argument was, But we can imagine that it probably had to do with their inability of casting out this demon from this possessed boy. They were probably challenging the disciples. Stating, look, this only confirms that the one in whom you're following is not the one and true Messiah. We don't know what they were saying. But amongst this all, the crowd looking at the argument taking place between the disciples and between the religious leaders, we have this man of complete and utter desperation who cries out to Jesus, trying to get his voice heard amongst the number of those yelling there in the mist because his boy is dying. It says that this boy being possessed by a devil by a demon himself, is often cast into fire by this demon or into water to destroy this young man. He's often, uh, he is found mute. He cannot speak. He cannot communicate with his own father. And he is harmed greatly, bruised by the uh, manner in which the Spirit seizes him. And as we find here, convulses as one who would appear to have epilepsy, foaming at the mouth, this demon shattering him 
from the inside out and will hardly leave him. This man is now trying to cry out. Again, I can imagine the desperation of the father. Being a parent of an only child, I can imagine to what lengths this father would go to see his child healed. Coming to the disciples, he had his hopes and he was desiring and praying undoubtedly that they were capable of healing him. That is, removing the demon within him and allowing him to feel peace and joy for the very first time. Demon possession is a reality. It is something that we try to dismiss here in our culture due to the fact that we have adopted naturalism as the basis of our scientific understanding. Meaning that all that truly exists is what we can see within the physical reality in which we occupy. The supernatural doesn't exist and therefore it doesn't need to be acknowledged and therefore, since it doesn't exist and we don't acknowledge it, that anything that manifests itself here in this world has to have a physical nature to it or origin to it. But yet the Bible clearly teaches us that behind this veil that we are masked from seeing, there is a spiritual realm that is truly the reality that one day we will occupy as individuals who have spent the lifetime in heaven and therefore the new heavens and the new earth that are to succeed it. What we are living in now is a physical world. But the reality that we are heading to is a reality of a spiritual world. And there are moments in time that that veil is pierced. And in this particular moment, like many accounts in the New Testament, we have a young man who is seized by a demonic spirit. Now, I am not saying that every case of mental illness is derived from demonic activity. I'm not saying that every, uh, every uh, diagnosis of epilepsy is due to a demonic spirit. But let us not dismiss the reality that the demonic spirits are active and they do work today. And you say, well, we just haven't seen that. I've never experienced that. Well, are you looking for that? I'm not personally looking for it, but I do understand that it is a reality. We know the demonic activity spiked during the first coming of Christ and according to Revelation will spike during his second coming also. But let us not understand that Paul went to great lengths to articulate to us in Ephesians chapter 6 that we fight not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and power. He then demonstrated for us that we need to clothe ourselves with the whole armor of God that we may stand against the wilds of whom? The world? No, the devil. That we have a spiritual adversary. And let us understand that Satan is real. Jesus told us very clearly that he has come to steal, kill, and destroy. That's exactly what we see happening here as this demon possesses this young man, stealing his hope and his joy, stealing, uh, uh, killing all uh, relationships and so forth, and destroying his own physical, personal life. The mandate is the same. But as Jesus came down to find what was happening, 
as we read and pick it up in verse 38. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out, and it convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. I beg you, I'm sorry, and I begged your disciples, excuse me, to cast it out, but they could not. In the other account, in Mark's account, before he, Jesus answers him, he turns to Jesus and he says to Jesus, if it's possible, Lord, if you can, can you heal my son? If it is possible for you, can you heal my son? And Jesus looks at him and says, if it's possible, oh, it's possible. And I'm going to do that for you. But before doing that, he turns to everyone there. It is interesting that often when we read this account, we see the words of Jesus encased in this rebuke, and we feel that it is only addressing those disciples that are there. But he uses a phrase that ties itself back to Deuteronomy. It is a phrase that is used throughout the Old Testament to indict the Jewish people for their stubbornness and their stiff-necked attitude towards the things of God. It is a phrase that is used to show and to demonstrate that even though the Jewish people were as privileged as they were to see God work in the majestic way that he did, from the moment he called Abraham out to establish the nation of Israel to the point of delivering them from the bondages of Egypt through the miraculous manner in which he did, through the plagues in which he poured out upon Egypt, even to the experiences of, of course, the Red Sea and the waters of Mira, etc., and even establishing them in the land under the leadership of Joshua, as the walls of Jericho came crumbling down due to the fact that they simply marched around the wall as God had prescribed them to march. In all that they had seen of God, yet they chose not to believe God. I am a strong advocate when it comes to the idea that there are many who have an easy time believing in God, but many have a very difficult time believing God. Well, what's the difference, you ask? I'll tell you the difference. Believing in God for our salvation is the point of beginning. It is where we recognize our need for a Savior. It's where we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ after hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we believe in God. And in that belief, when I say I believe in God, I believe the fact that God exists. And the revelation that I have to this point of Him as my Savior, I accept. And so I can believe God and trust Him for my salvation. Where the real rub comes in is walking with Him day by day. And believing His promises towards me to sustain me as I walk through this world. That's where the difficulty comes in. That's where the children of Israel stumbled. 
That's where we find as Christians we often uh, confront the promises of God with doubt and unbelief. As he turns to the crowd here in our text in verse 41, Jesus answers and says, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Jesus is unhappy with what he sees being manifested. Why won't you simply believe? At the beginning of chapter 9 in Luke's Gospel, we find very clearly that Jesus gave all authority over demons to his disciples so that they may go and cast them out. Now, for some reason, they're incapable of doing so. And as a result, this man now is in further desperation, not only questioning the uh, ability of the disciples, obviously, from their lack of ability to do what he has asked them to do, but even questioning the ability of Jesus himself. In the relationship of, uh, of the Lord and disciples at that time, disciples were given the information that they may carry on the teachings and lifestyle of the teacher in whom they followed. Jesus went one step further. And he gave his disciples, his followers, the abilities to do the same things that he did. And you see this throughout the book of Acts. They raised the dead, they fed, they fed the hungry, they healed the sick, they opened the eyes of the blind, they healed the lame, etc. Just as Jesus did through the power of the Holy Spirit. But to do so, they needed to truly believe, number one, of who God is, and who Jesus is, and number two, understand the authority that they had been given within him. The Jewish people were meant to be a light unto the dark world. God wanted to establish them as a society that was governed by him under a theocracy, and that the whole world could see what blessed lives they lived for or had because they lived for God. And yet they continuously provoked him time and time again, went after other gods and, and sinned you know, without remorse or repentance. And they constantly threw it back at God and threw it in his eye, as it would be said. And they lived for themselves and never were able to become that light unto the world in which God hoped them to be. Jesus then comes into this world and says, I am the light of the world. And then before his crucifixion and ascension, he says, now we are the light of the world, moving us into the church, the time in which you and I occupy today. But he calls them a unbelieving, corrupt generation. One of the greatest cliff notes given in the Bible is found in Acts chapter 7. If you are one of those who went through your higher education using cliff notes, chapter 7 of the book of Acts gives you an entire history of the Jewish people recounted by Stephen as he stood before the religious leaders. And he uses a phrase over and over and over again to identify the hearts and minds of the Jewish people. You stiff-necked and stubborn people. Not very ingratiating, is it? But if you read the Old Testament, it summed it up perfectly. 
Because he was referring to the people of Israel and their history with God and their inability or unwillingness to believe God, I wanted to be able to articulate for you this morning reasons why we as Christians have difficulty in believing God. We can believe in Him for our salvation, but when it comes to the day-after-day events, it becomes more and more difficult to stand on His promises by faith and trust Him for our everyday needs and provisions. So what causes unbelief in a Christian? That unbelief is a failure to trust God. I came up with six. First and foremost, I believe that a believer in Jesus Christ uh, struggles and often moves to a position of unbelief because they do not know God's Word. From Genesis to Revelation, not knowing and understanding the Word of God has led more to a position of unbelief than belief. From the very beginning... When the Satan challenged Eve in the garden, he twisted what God had said to Adam. And therefore, as he twisted it and asked Eve to repeat it, she repeated it inaccurately, not knowing what God actually had said to Adam. And as a result, she allowed herself that moment of vulnerability where she was then susceptible to temptation. For God said, you shall eat of every tree of the garden except one. And that tree you shall not eat of, and that is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But when Satan approached Eve, Eve reiterated it to Satan and said, God told us that we could eat of any tree of the garden, but if we eat or touch the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then we shall surely die. Because of her lack of truly understanding what God said, and I think that's revealed by her inaccurate description to Satan himself, notice what he does next. He then comes back to her and says, Does God, are you really surely going to die? Really? Well, I think so. Yeah, I think that's what he said. Yeah, yeah if we eat or touch, we're going to die. Yeah, I, I, maybe not. And often it is that misunderstanding of God's Word that leads us into so many different problems. So number one, not knowing God's Word will often lead us to a position of unbelief in a matter and time when God is asking us to trust Him. Number two, we often resort to a position of unbelief when we limit God to our own personal abilities. In the Old Testament, when they came to the promised land, instead of taking it as God had prescribed them to take it, they sent in 12 spies. And out of those 12 spies, two came back, uh, jo- uh, Josiah, uh, Josiah. <laughs> Jos- uh, uh, Joshua and Caleb, and said, this is cake, no problem, we can certainly secure this for the nation of Israel. The other ten, though, came back and said, no, wait, 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 right now. There's giants in the land. They're big, really big. Limiting God to their personal ability. Seeing the giants in the light of their strength rather than in the strength of God. 
And therefore they cowered and retreated. And because of that, and because Moses took that advice, God had them wander the wilderness for 40 years. Often we will retreat to unbelief when we sum up the circumstances in light of our own personal ability. Anytime I do that, I'm easily going to become overwhelmed because my personal abilities are very limited. Now, if I face those same circumstances and bring God into the equation, well, now we have a whole different ballgame, don't we? Because what's too difficult for God? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Just a, a quick amendment to this also. When we feel we are alone, we often will retreat to a position of unbelief. Because that feeling of being alone will often cause us to move into that understanding or the summary of our circumstances based upon our own personal limitations. But let us know that Jesus is always with us. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. Notice that the nine disciples trying to cast out this demon were alone at this moment, weren't they? Jesus was on top of the mountain of transfiguration with John, Peter, and James. And as a result, these these nine could not uh, uh, cast out the demon accordingly. When we feel alone is when we often feel vulnerable and move into a place of unbelief. Number four. When we have a lack of conviction concerning that which God has said. When we have a lack of conviction concerning what God has said, the children of Israel... Often, though God would clearly tell them something, they chose not to believe it. Oh, that's never going to happen. That's silly. God has given us victory over all of our enemies. What do you mean the Babylonians are going to come and conquer us? God will never allow that to happen. Oh, yes, He would. Because they weren't obedient. Lack of conviction. Lack of conviction. You know, Paul made it abundantly clear that what sustained him through his missionary journey was the fact that he knew that God was going to supply all of his needs. It didn't matter where Paul found himself at any given time. Paul made it clear that he had confidence that God was going to supply all of his needs and that anyone who followed God could also be confident that God is going to supply all of your needs. But then why is it that when we're in need of something, we so often quickly doubt God? In fact, in the Old Testament, he was even called Jehovah Jireh. God is our provider. But yet we doubt God. Well, there were times that I needed something and God didn't provide it. Well, you know, God's a lot like Walmart. If he doesn't provide it, you don't need it. If Walmart doesn't have it, you don't need it, okay? We often feel that we need things that God says, no, you don't need. I still feel like I need a Corvette. I, you know, I could get to church and faster. I mean, I could have longer devotions in the morning. God doesn't care how fast you get to 55, where that's permitted. You know, but he blessed me with a Corolla. Zero to 60 in 5.3 minutes. You know... There's often things that God doesn't give to us because he knows they're going to cause more harm than good. 
And even if I got a Corvette, I wouldn't know what to do with it. You know, I'd be so, oh, oh, you know, know, don't touch it, don't even look at it. But lack of conviction often leads the individual to choose not to believe God when they should believe God. Number four. When the wisdom of the world contradicts the things of God, this often happens to us. When the wisdom of this world contradicts the things of God. When the world doesn't see a hope or a means by which we can be hopeful, and we find that hope and that peace that surpasses all understanding, and we are allowing that peace to govern us in very trying circumstance, the world looks at us and says, well, you should be worried, you should be concerned, you should be fretting and and overwhelmed and so forth by these things. And you're like, no, God is with me, God is sustaining me, and God has given me a peace that I don't fully understand. Often we choose not to believe God when the wisdom of this world conflicts with God. We've been told for years that our entire world was uh, brought about by a big bang explosion and then over millions of years we evolved into what we are today. But God said in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and in six days he articulates for us exactly how he did what he did and in the manner and the steps in which he took to bring about the creation in which we live. But the wisdom of the world would make me look foolish if I were to adopt the idea of creationism over evolution. I will be frowned upon intellectually. I may be ostracized by academic conversations because I believe in creation rather than an evolutionary process. Some Christians have tried to bridge this gap by bringing in a a divine evolutionary process called theistic evolution. But why is it so hard for us to believe that God created all things in six days? When I'm challenged on that question by a, a secular individual who doesn't know God, and he asks me, or she asks me, well, how can you believe that all of this was created in a mere six days? I kind of chuckle, and I've said this to you before. Because of my understanding of my God, I'm surprised it took him that long. If you think about it, he could have done all of this immediately. And he took his time and he rested after each occasion by saying it is all good. And on the seventh day, the seventh day is the the real mystery. When he rested, what did he do during that time? But yet, why is it so hard for us to believe God when he says, in the beginning, God, I created the heavens and the earth? I believe if you can believe that one verse of the Bible, everything else that follows it's easy. Cake. The wisest man who ever lived was named Solomon, apart from Jesus Christ. And he said this in Proverbs 3, 5, and 8, and he wrote this to his children. He says, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. 
The wisdom of this world does, does not take God into the equation ever. And therefore, it is grossly incapable of explaining the deepest questions that an individual has concerning their own personal existence and the existence of this world. The fifth one is the deceitfulness of sin. Sin often lures us away from believing God and embracing a position of unbelief before God. The Hebrew writer wrote to us, and he warned us of this fact, that sin initially can taste sweet, the Bible says. But after it is digested, it permeates in our stomach and it kills us from the inside out, doesn't it? The deceitfulness of sin will often draw us into a place where we choose not to believe God rather than believing Him. The Hebrew writer warned us, he said, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin will often bring you to a place of unbelief before God. And in each one of these cases, we have uh, numerous examples of the children of Israel falling into these various pitfalls and therefore being called by Jesus a faithless and twisted generation. Let it not be so with us. Well, how do we overcome such an amazing are such a difficult chasm as unbelief is. The crowd, notice with me in the beginning of verse 43, after verse 42, Jesus was, while he was coming, that is this boy was coming to Jesus, the demon threw him to the ground, trying to have one more last go at this boy. And convulsed him. And look at these two words. These two words are two of the most important words that you'll ever read in the Bible. Let me explain. Whatever circumstance you face in life, whatever it may be, whatever you are dealing with and contending with, whatever you believe is insurmountable and you'll never be able to overcome it, Whatever you feel is so prominent and dominant in your life that it is creating your total identity as a person. I want you to say these two words to yourself, but Jesus. Whatever I'm facing, but Jesus. Right? He can change anything at any time in a matter of seconds, can't he? See, that's why I don't despair. Because whatever I'm faced with, you know, but God. You know, let's always bring God into the equation. Let us bring Jesus into the equation. When I got saved when I was 16 years old, I grew up in a very difficult home, as most of you know. And I believed initially that I was always going to be a byproduct of that environment. That it was going to define me. 
and limit me and hinder me in all of my relationships going forward. But then somebody simply said to me, Eric, do you understand that you are a new creation in Christ? Old things have passed away. All things are brand new. And you know what I said? In my intellectualism of the moment, in my theological quest, here's the conclusion I came to. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. And you know what I experienced? Victory. Freedom. Grace. Mercy. Notice here the helplessness of the religious leaders. They couldn't do anything. The helplessness of the disciples. They couldn't do anything. The crowd. They could not do anything. But Jesus, here he comes, rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy. He didn't get into any kind of uh, demonic you know, exercise with this demon. He simply said, get out of here. You have no business being here. He didn't go into his uh, demon ninja stance before the demonic boy in his authority as God himself. He rebuked him. And the unclean spirit left him. And the boy was healed. And look at this next phrase. Not only is God concerned about the restoration of the individual, bringing a right spirit to him, healing him from what that spirit had brought upon him, and gave him back to his father. That is extraordinary to me. That is incredible to me, that Jesus went to that great length to restore that relationship to the father. And all were astonished by what had happened. The great pastor John Phillips, if you have a chance to read his commentaries or listen to his sermons, I'd encourage you to do so. Extraordinary teacher. He wrote a commentary on the Gospel of Luke and asked us to consider an illustration that is being painted for us within this scenario. Notice that in the valley of this world, today we have those controlled by the oppressive nature of a demonic spirit. Now, am I saying that every person who isn't a believer in Jesus Christ is demon-possessed? No, that's not what I'm saying at all. But what I am saying is that every person apart from Christ who does not believe in Jesus Christ is under the sway of the wicked one is under the ruler of this world. That's what the Bible says. Regardless if they feel that they are a free moral agent and they are answering to no one, in, events, in the events of life, they will soon discover that they are in the servitude of the ruler of this world, Satan himself. This is the purpose that Jesus came. The, the destroyer had come to steal, kill, and destroy, but the works of Jesus Christ was to overcome the works of the devil. We have a world today under the sway of the wicked one. We have desperate individuals around us who are looking to be delivered from the sway of the, of the wicked one. We have a church today in our society that seems inept, like the disciples who could do nothing. And a world that is mocking us as the crowd that gathered there just uh, being spectators to what was taking place before us. And yet in and through it all, God showed himself strong. 
I do not want to be part of that inept church. And so being part of a victorious church or a victorious Christian life means this. I must believe God. And it's not the size of my faith that matters. Jesus precedes this account by stating that if we had the faith the size of a mustard seed, we would be successful in removing mountains. What does he mean by that? It means it's not our faith that matters, but who we have faith in. So every circumstance that I ever face, I'm not going to face it alone, but I'm going to bring God into the equation. I'm going to bring Christ into the uh, the equation. Because I don't care what we are struggling with, God is superior to it all, and He is capable of delivering us, He's He's capable of healing us, and He's capable of restoring us, isn't He? Just as He did this young man. But as an individual, you ask, how can I overcome the unbelief that I face? Well, let me say it this way. One writer wrote, he said, How is faith cultivated in the life of the believer? It is cultivated by studying the Word of God, by learning what God is like. And as we study the Bible, we get to know God. And our faith is made strong because it is in Him. Years ago when I started my biblical studies, I didn't realize that I approached them from completely an inappropriate perspective. I wanted to know, as when I first became a believer in Jesus Christ, I wanted to know all about God. And so I started reading from Genesis to Revelation, trying to learn all about God. And I felt very um, defeated in that pursuit. You're like, well, that's interesting. Why? See, I was approaching it in the wrong manner. Until one day I came to the conclusion, no, it's not that God wants me to know all about Him, it's that God wants me to know Him. There's a grave difference between the two. It's one thing to be able to know an athlete's you know, scores and statistics and, and etc. It's another thing to know that athlete personally, isn't it? See, God wanted me to know Him and convo- uh, cultivate a relationship with Him. He says, don't search the Scriptures to know about me. Search the Scriptures to know me. And when I began to do that, you know what? Everything changed. Because I realized that God wanted to have a relationship with me through Christ. That God the Father wanted me to run into His throne room in my time of need to find grace and mercy. And He wanted me to do it boldly. And you can't do that if you don't know Him. Jesus said to those who practice lawlessness, who say that they did all of these things in His name, He said, depart from Me, for I never knew you. He wasn't worried about what they knew about Him. He said, even the demons know that there's one true God. They know that about Me. No, but I want to know you. Jesus used a very interesting word. And it's often missed in the sense of relationship in John 15, and I close with this this morning. It is a word that we find in John 15 used several times, many, 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 many times. And that is this, the word abide. He said to his disciples the night before his crucifixion as they were leaving 
the place where they had just celebrated the uh, first communion and the uh, advent of the uh, new covenant there in the upper room. And as they were making their way uh, back to the Garden of Gethsemane, they were walking through a grapevine, uh, a grape vineyard. And he used the vines as an illustration. And he said to them, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he he is the one who will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. He then later says in that same passage, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. He uses this word to describe the continuing relationship between two people. The continuing relationship between two people. I encourage you to overcome your unbelief by approaching the Word of God, not to simply know about God, but to know who God is. And in your pursuit of knowing who God is, in your relationship with Him, continue to abide with Him. Letting Him abide in you, you abiding in Him, and letting His Word permeate your heart, mind, and soul. That's how you will overcome unbelief as a believer in Jesus Christ. We struggle with relationships today, don't we? Many don't know how to cultivate relationships, begin relationships, sustain relationships. But I will tell you that Christianity is all about relationship. A relationship between us and the Holy God who created all things. That is made possible through Jesus Christ. And notice that as we, the church, is in this world, the world is looking to us in desperation, just as that father was in desperation. Why? Because people in this world are subjected to the ruler of this world who is simply here to steal, kill, and to destroy them completely. We are the only hope for them. And for them to come to us is right. But if we don't believe what we say we believe, then where shall they go from there? There's nowhere to go. But even if we fail, the faithfulness of God is incredible. And those who seek Him will find Him.